that God is doing. Uh, I've heard so much about your church here in a, the beloved city of St. Louis where I called uh, home for about eight or nine years. And uh, to see this sort of materialize and see God's work here and even beyond, it is a deep joy for me. And um, I hope to encourage you with the word this morning as we continue to pursue that beautiful vision of being the very handprint of God here. So will you join me as we pray and we'll dive into the word. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? We turn to you now. We give you our hearts and we ask that you would feed us with your word, that you would strengthen our faith, that we might believe and that these promises will come alive and take a hold of us and shape us as your people that we might become the people that you have called us to, the people that you saved, the people that you've given promises to, so that we, as we look forward to the day when all this is completed, will begin to reflect what is good, true, and right here in our homes, in our workplaces, and in this city, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I am uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, married to my wife, Grace, who is not here, but she will be for the second service. And we have four kids. One of the joys of having four kids in St. Louis is you fit. It seems like everyone has four kids. And to drive an oversized SUV sort of gives you a pass here in the city, but not so much in D.C. Things are a little different. And so we had to come up with a different script to do family, but not only that, even ministry in Washington, D.C. And so a handful of us pastors in Washington, D.C. got together to study and to discuss Dr. Irwin Ince's book, The Beautiful Community, and uh, with a focus toward application. What does it mean for us to be a beautiful community where we are? How do we apply these great truths that we read about in not only in Erwin Ince's book, but the Bible, and to begin to live that out in such compelling ways that the, so that the people around us will catch a glimpse of what Christ longs to do? So how do we do this? Well, the first time we gathered, we didn't spend a whole lot of time discussing the book itself. We went through an extended and exhausting time of introduction, as that can be sometimes. And uh, we got to the final pastor where he began his sharing time with the words, I was a racist. Those words hung over us for what it felt like minutes and hours. And he began to explain how by the grace of God, he is who he is today. You see, he grew up in a Christian home. In fact, he is the fourth generation preacher. So nothing is new. He's been there and done that. But it wasn't until he moved to a bigger part of town that was nearby his hometown that he grew up in that he began to learn about race and racism. And before long, he picked sides with his white friends in his middle school. And he tells us, or he, yeah, he shared with us that over the years, that his hatred for the other only grew. So it was natural when he was making plans to go to college 
to pick his best white friend to be his roommate. And it worked out. Life was going just as planned until his roommate had to go back home due to a family emergency. At that time, the university assigned him a new roommate, an African-American gentleman. And it didn't take long before they both realized that they were on the opposite ends of this race spectrum and that they didn't want anything to do with each other. He thought, look, I'll hold my breath for a semester, and if they don't bring me a new roommate, then I'll just drop out of school. But God had other plans. After a few weeks, this now pastor went through one of the most difficult times of his life. And seeing him suffer, his roommate invited him to church. And there in that church service, this now pastor understood the gospel and he realized that he's a sinner saved only by the grace of God and that this great savior calls him then to exemplify this very grace to those whom God has sent. And he wrapped up his time by saying that they are now best friends. And even though they live miles apart, they stay in touch, sharing, praying for each other and their families. It's stories like this that give us hope, right? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can turn enemies to friends, to bring people together, not just to tolerate. That is a horrible word, by the way. Tolerance is not a virtue. Can you imagine if you're speaking with one of your friends and they say to you, you know what, I tolerate my wife. I do my best to tolerate her, but it's really hard. You would consider that marriage not very ideal. And even though the world upholds tolerance as a high virtue, the Bible says that's the baseline because God does not simply tolerate us. He loves us. And he went to hell and back to claim us so that he could utter our name and that we would respond with faith and obedience. And so in our cultural moment, we have a great opportunity as a church to be the church. I've always said that the right is not right enough and the left is not left enough. Yes, they touch on some virtues that we as Christians believe to be true and right, but they do not go as far as the Bible calls us to. And instead of choosing sides and raising our tribal flags to say, here we are, I think the church needs to enter into that middle space, the gray, the ambiguous place to say, no, the gospel actually cause us to be something different altogether, far more beautiful and compelling than both sides of the political aisle. Chuck Colson, a political strategist under President Nixon, he once wrote, I meet millions who tell me that they feel demoralized by the decay around us. Where is the hope? The hope that each of us have is not who governs us or what laws are passed, 
or what great things we do as a nation. Our hope is the power of God working through the hearts of people, and that's where our hope is in this country. That's where our hope is in life. These words are true even today. The hope is not somewhere out there in the litigation or even the policies that roll out of Capitol Hill, but hope is in our Savior who rose again, who defeated sin and death, and who calls the church his very own and has committed himself to his people and has said that not even the gates of hell would be able to withstand the church from being the church. So what do we see in Ephesians chapter 4 that helps us to navigate the turbulent waters of our cultural moment so that we can be a compelling church? We want to look at two things together. First, let's look at unity in the church. Unity in the church. Apostle Paul is careful to not divorce theology from practice. In the first three chapters of this epistle, he outlines what the theologians call the gospel indicatives, the things that God in Christ has done for us, which we could not do ourselves. And in chapter 4, Paul unpacks this for us, the application of the gospel, and helps us to understand that grace that saves us also shapes us. It shapes our desires, our thoughts, our speech, and even our action. And in the subsequent chapters, Paul will go on to say, it's not just us in our own relation, our relationship with God, but it actually, the gospel has something to say about our marriage, about our parenting, and even our workplace. And can I just say as a footnote that this here is the scope of the gospel. It's never about just me and Jesus. It's never about me and my relationship with God, but it's God calling us to enter into the world to be agents of transformation in this broken world. And we'll talk more about that later. But God has always had in mind the nations. That's our calling. Not just to gather together here on Sundays, in this spiritual holy huddles to affirm what God has done for us. That's great. But I hope what happens on Sundays does not stay in the four walls of this church, but that we begin to live it out in such beautiful ways in between Sundays as well. Our American Christian sensibilities might find it interesting that Paul puts the unity of the church at the top of this list. Why unity? Why does Paul elevate unity? We have to go back to chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. There's a lot there, and we lose a lot because of cultural and historical distance between then and now. But you talk about ethnic social, political, and religious tensions between two groups, I can't imagine any more, I guess, conflict or tension between two groups than the Jews and the Gentiles. Yet, we are told that it is God's plan to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together to form one new humanity under the banner of Christ known as the church. 
This is a powerful example of grace reversing the curse of sin. And we see this ever since Genesis chapter 3, don't we? Sin always divides. It always separates. It happened in the first marriage. And before long, it happened in the first family. And you don't have to get too far into the book of Genesis before you realize that everything has fallen apart. That people have pitted themselves against one another. And all of a sudden, language and other tribal markers have been elevated as the main identifier. But God pushes against that kind of posturing and he says, no, you are to be one. And when we look at the world around us today, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? We have continued what happened in Genesis chapter three. And in my town, we divide over politics. Whether you're right or left, red or blue, means everything. People don't care about you as an individual so long as they know where you stand politically. And they're happy to accept you or write you off based on your political philosophies. And the gospel says, not so with the church. And this, the idea of bringing people together is not a New Testament concept. We read about it way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to bless all peoples on earth. And later on in Isaiah 49, he says, it is too small of a thing for you to bless Israel only. And he promises his servant, Jesus Christ, that he would be a light to the nations. And we see the fulfillment of this promise in the book of Revelation as people from every nation, tongue, and tribe gather to worship. And as we long for that day, we have a responsibility a calling as a church. And we must, therefore, prioritize unity for two reasons. First, for maturity. For maturity. The church cannot be filled with all the fullness of God, as Ephesians 3.19 says, without a commitment to one another. That means my spiritual maturity is dependent on you. I don't know how, but it is. It's a mystery, but true. And your spiritual maturity has everything to do with me and my faith and obedience. You see, we are more connected than we think. And in order for us to grow, to understand Christ, understand the gospel, the community, and the world promised to us, and the glory that awaits us, we need each other. We want to believe that we are what we know, and so we devour books. But that's not even half the story, because biblical anthropology teaches us that we are not only what we know, but we are embodied people. And it's in the context of community that we begin to flesh out the details of who Christ is, and the community that he has called us to be in, and the gospel that we preach, we believe, and make much of. Paul tells us that together, as God's people, we become 
a holy temple, a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And there's so much there that we can unpack, which we don't have time for this morning. But this idea, the togetherness, undercuts our individualistic view on Christianity, doesn't it? But we need each other. Here's Lewis on this. He says, God works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. Men are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other men. Usually, it is those who know him that bring him to others. That is why the church, the whole body of Christians, showing him to one another is so important. What happens on Sunday is much more than you giving your worship to God or you having a good worship experience. Again, that leans very individualistic. What happens on Sundays, besides the covenant renewal with God, which is the big thing, is that we point each other to Christ. And as we sing, as we share, as we fellowship, as we encourage and admonish one another with the word, we are showing Christ the word to one another. And your experience and story and history they tell me something about Christ. And that's why it's so important that we gather on Sunday to worship. So maturity. Second is witness. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, these words, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity in the midst of diversity, political and otherwise, demonstrates the power and the hope of the gospel that restores that which was lost in Eden. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's worth repeating. Our love for one another is a final apologetics. It's the most compelling witness to the beauty and the power of Christ in this lost world. But Paul continues his case, just in case we are not catching on. Here in chapter 4, and he says, verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all. And I'm sure he could have gone on and on and on, outlining all the things that we have in common as a people of God. But Paul's point is simply this, that we have every reason to be united. We bicker and divide over secondary and tertiary issues. But Paul says, don't forget that which is the most important thing, which is Christ, the body of Christ, the spirit, the Lord, the baptism, and so on and so forth. Here, R.C. Sproul is insightful, and he says, the union of believers is grounded in the mystical union of Christ and his church. The Bible speaks of a two-way transaction that occurs when a person is regenerated. Every converted person becomes in Christ at the same time Christ enters into the believer. If I am in Christ and you are in Christ, and if he is in us, then we experience a profound unity in Christ. Let that marinate a little bit. 
You see, it's easy to put a label on somebody and to dismiss them. Because the moment we put a label on someone, we strip them of their humanity. If they're just a Democrat or a Republican, it's easy to slander and dismiss and divide. But if we understand that individual as someone beloved, someone for whom Christ died and rose again for, someone in whom the Spirit of God lives, it's hard to look at that person and strip them of the glory that Christ bestows on them. As important as unity is, Paul knows it's hard. It's hard. After all, he and Barnabas split ways after a heated argument over missions, personnel, and strategy. So how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? Paul tells us in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It begins with humility, the inner posture, if you will, and extends to the manner in which we deal with one another, gentleness, patience, and love, and so on and so forth. Patience and bearing with one another assume things will get rough at times. So don't be surprised if you find unity challenging and difficult and not accomplished overnight. But like many good things, unity is worth our effort. The anchor that holds all of these attributes and virtues together is really love, isn't it? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and following, that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy nor boast, and so on and so forth. So where do we get this love? Do we simply work harder, try more, do better next time to love ourselves and others? Good luck. You see, love is like a muscle that fatigues very easily. It's like our New Year resolutions. We may go for a couple of weeks, but not much longer. If you turn inward, looking for a hero in you, as someone once said, you're going to realize that you're not that hero. But there is a hero in you, and that's Christ. If we want to love as Christ calls us to love, then we need to first and foremost glory in the love that Christ has for us. And we need to allow that love to wash over us again and again and again. And that love begins to take hold of our hearts to shape us into the image of Him who loves us well. That is the only way we're going to then face people who are different from us. To love them. And this is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That every time we turn to him, he meets us with love. That we don't have to try hard to earn a place at the table. No, there is a seat already there for you. And every time you come, he receives you. He will never despise you. He will never reject your prayers. He will never say to you, Really, again? I thought you said you were going to do that. Remember your last prayer? What, what, no. He loves you, and he will receive you. 
And it's that very love that compels us to love him, love others, and love ourselves the way it was meant to be. But Christ knows that we need more than this. Isn't it just like our Savior to not only give us the word and the love that we need in order to pursue that beautiful unity that he calls us to, but that he gives us a diversity of gifts, which is our second and final point. Jesus helps us to maintain the unity of the Spirit by giving us good gifts. In John 16, Jesus told his disciples that it is better for him to go because then the Spirit will come. And in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit does come upon God's people on the day of Pentecost. And, to, and he ushers in a new era, the era of the church. And starting with verse 11, here Paul records Christ's gifts to the church. By the way, this idea of Christ descending and ascending and giving gifts points to Christ the victor. He defeats sin and death. He rises again from the grave. He takes off the grave clothes and he prepares breakfast for us. And he ascends and from the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he dispenses good gifts to his people, the church. And the gifts are many, including the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Let's define them quickly. Apostles were used to provide a foundation for the church and were instrumental in the completion of the New Testament. Prophets spoke forth God's word that was consistent with the Old and the New Testament to rebuke, correct, and encourage the people of God. Evangelists are gifted preachers of the gospel to, uh, of Christ to non-Christians. Pastors and teachers or elders are those who shepherd God's flock with the word and the sacraments. Now, regardless of your denominational background and your theological position on spiritual gifts, we can all agree on this, that these gifts, apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are called to equip God's people for ministry. Okay? It's often the opposite, isn't it? It's the pastors, the elders, the deeks, and a handful of volunteers that are working really, really, really hard while the 80% spectate. If you're waiting for that one day to come where you have all the free time in the world to volunteer and to serve, can I just tell you that that, that one day will never come. You see, serving the church is like having children. There is no such thing as a right time to serve. It's always going to be an inconvenience. It's always going to require sacrifice on your part, but that's the way it's supposed to be. We talk of grace and we must, but that does not cancel our commitment to Christ. In fact, it is grace that allows our commitment to Christ to begin with. And there's grace for us when we fail. And so we want to exalt grace, but it does not cancel our commitment, our faith, and our obedience. So I want to encourage all of you, if you're like my church and as you're trying to figure out what it's like to regather and to do church again, to be the people of God again, then we're going to need help. Someone's got to greet. Someone's got to welcome. Someone's got to lead worship. Someone's got to lead small groups. Someone's got to spearhead the outreach movements. We need people. And so please, it's better to play the game than to sit on the sidelines, trust me. 
we, I get it. We all need timeouts. We all need bench time. But don't stay there too long. Get back in the game and serve, okay? Pastor Dan asked me to say all this, so I'm, I'm saying <laughs> it's not in my notes. I'm just... And notice that the offices that we mentioned, they're all heavy on the Word of God, right? They're all heavy on the Word. Why? Because as 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 say, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, these offices are heavy in the word because it's the word that equips us. It's the word that encourages us. It's the word that motivates us and really serves as fuel to our service. Again, service is not something we do because we feel guilty or we feel like, well, I got nothing better to do. No, service is what we do in response to the gospel and the truth of God's word. It reminds us who we are, whose we are, and why we've been brought into the community. We love community, but no one wants to work for it, right? God knows that community takes work, and we've all been given a gift. And so it's time for us to all jump in, get in the game, exercise the gifts that God has given to us, and serve this beautiful community. But the work is not on us alone, is it? It's a spirit's unity. We're not called to create this unity. No, he's doing that. We're called to partner in the spirit and his work in maintaining his unity. The unity of the church does not rest on our faithfulness. Praise God for that. I don't know about you, but boy, there would be no church if... If it were on me, praise God that it's his unity and we get to participate in it. And as we do, God takes our little efforts to do great things. He doesn't need much from you. He just needs little. And he can do great things. And we see this throughout history. In the midst of persecution, the church has been the church. And it didn't just survive. It thrived. And just as Jesus said, not even the gates of hell would be able to withstand the church. Why? Because of our love for one another. And that is the most compelling script. Love that makes no sense. Love that crosses racial, political, and other boundaries. Love that calls us to face one another and to say, you are my brother, my sister, I love you. Despite our differences, Christ has loved me in this way, and therefore, I will love you. So let's be that church. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for Christ and for his love for us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your son to die for us, to go to hell and back, to claim us as yours. We pray that we would rest in that love, that we would be shaped by it, would be formed by it, and that we would become agents of it, we pray. 
beginning here, that we would do this work in this community first. And together, as one man, that we will engage this community with the love of Christ, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.